You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Uh, Bracket, what am I holding in my hand here? You are holding a full-size Coca-Cola bottle. It's actually a 12-ounce. It's fun. It's fun size. It's a fun size bottle. But what does it mean? This is a peek behind the curtains, folks. What does it mean when Kirk DeWint is holding a bottle of Coke? It has significance. That means you just clocked out. That's your reward at the end of a, a big workout. Clock out crack one open so fun fact folks about once a week or twice a week i enjoy myself a full sugar straight up coke and usually i have them during our recordings because what happens is i get done with a quality session and we hop right into a recording because we have our schedule pretty tight and this is my uh this is my reward before i eat lunch so full quality full coke today how do you feel about that bracken is it weird to you or does it seem acceptable because most people, when they see me drinking a Coke, they're like, are you drinking a Coke? It gets like a very strong reaction for some reason. Yeah, I could see that. I like it. I love the idea of some sort of ritualistic, tangible, sticker-based system of you did well. I, I think I've said this on here before. I've, I've said this part. I used, we, were, we were a gymnastics family. So I grew up doing gymnastics. Everyone in my family did. And my older sister was very high level. But the town we grew up in, um, was host to several Olympians in a row. We're just kind of West, West Dallas, Wisconsin became a hotbed for speed skating and gymnastics. And one of those Olympic families was the owner of the gym we were at and friends with my family. So we spent a lot of time together. And uh, her dad was the head coach there. And his thing was sticker systems. You did good. You got a sticker. And it started when we were all like four years old. He started doing yeah. that. And he continued it up. He'd go to their national training camps. And he would hand out stickers to these girls, Olympic athletes. And they would turn themselves inside out for stickers. Because it didn't matter what it was. It was the idea that there was some sort of reward system. And it worked better than almost anything else. So the, like the competitions coaches usually use that the losers have to condition. Which is kind of a dumb thing for coaches to do, even though it's universal and everyone does it. Well, not everyone, mm -hmm. but... It pairs conditioning to a negative outcome, and I don't like that. But the sticker system seems to work for everyone, and the Coke is like your it's your sticker. You're putting a stamp on a good day's work. I like it. You're not wrong. I think a Coke is a is a the perfect short-term recovery drink, Bracken. You got all that sugar, replace yeah. that glycogen, little caffeine just to just to perk you back up. I'm going to keep doing it. You know what's funny about the sticker system is when I coached high school girls track, I had the sucker system. If I thought you did a good job, I gave you a sucker after the workout and only after quality days. But you would be surprised the chaos caused by not giving somebody a sucker was almost not worth the sucker system at all because be like, you really didn't bring your best effort today. And then like three out of 17 girls wouldn't get a sucker. And like it would hurt, and then they just hated me for the rest of like the season because I think I'm a sucker that mm -hmm. one day. I I didn't have it quite refined. That's what I'm saying. They're blow pops, actually. They liked them. I did PR bars. Mm. That way, it was purely black and white. I didn't have to reward mindset or anything like that. It was just PR bars. If you ran a PR, 
you got a candy bar. And then I, I did, it was funny that people would do whatever for a PR bar, yeah. but uh, I did post, I think I've told about this, but this is probably like three years ago at this point, this podcast is starting to age a little bit. Uh, I did post-race write-ups for the team. So everyone would get a paragraph or two about what they did in the race. And that was kind of the the buffer zone against, I never PR. or I mean, everyone PR'd. Even if you're slow, you get better throughout the year. But I never win races. We, we would try to highlight something they did well in the race. And we'd hand those things out, and the room would go dead quiet. People would be walking over to their spot on the floor. We usually did it in the wrestling room where we would stretch out. And they would just plop down. You'd have like 30 high school kids dead silent for 10 minutes, which is almost an impossibility mm-hmm. to get 30 yeah. high school kids silent. But it was always so rewarding to watch them care about their race recap and then eat their PR bar. That reminds me of when <clears throat> you were running leaderboard. And once a week, you'd do a Facebook uh, call for all the athletes on leaderboard, and you'd run through everybody's races and how it went. Mm-hmm. And I remember everybody was really attentive, just waiting for you to get to them. And it was always something I looked forward to. I do remember that. That's when I still thought you were cool. When I was like, oh, my God, this guy is a Spartan pro. He is the coolest guy that I know. Yeah, I'd just be captivated for that half an hour recap, you know, but... And then you got to peek behind the curtain and you realize the truth. You're just like me. We're all just like each other, folks. Yeah, we're all still 13-year-old kids wanting that little, like, thumbs up, that attaboy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, speaking of attaboys, um, let's jump right into it, mm-hmm. um, man. Might as well. You raced this weekend, and you're going to do most of the talking today. Um, but I'll set, set it up a little bit. Uh, Bracken went, um, and raced the Spartan 3k, uh, in the Poconos, Palmerton. I don't like calling it the Poconos, but the elite series race by far the most stacked men's elite series field thus far this year, uh, which would be an intimidating race to come back to the 3k format or 1k trial for, or, uh, rounds format. Um, if you haven't been listening recently, uh, a little bit of indecision on your part about going. In fact, I believe we talked almost That's up generous. <laughs> okay. But a, a bit of indecision about going. And we, we even chatted that week a couple of times about like, do I really, should I really go? Do I really even want to go? What is this going to do for me? If I do or don't go, what will it mean if I do or don't go? Uh, and ultimately you decided to go. <clears throat> which was absolutely, I think, the right choice. Uh, and then we had a nice chat after the race as well. On your way home, we chatted for, what, a half an hour? I don't know. And I heard a good bit of optimism in your voice, if I'm being honest. And I heard a good bit of glass half full. And I think this weekend was probably best case scenario from a learning standpoint. But I, I want to get your take now Tell the people how you did, what happened, and then now that you've had a few days for the dust to settle, how you're feeling uh, about the race. Well, I guess rip the Band-Aid off. I did not do well, and I don't think that's an overstatement. I th- There were 43 people who took part, and I was I finished officially 18th, which is, to date, my second worst finish ever at any obstacle race. The other was a world championship where I cramped. So oh, I don't know. It's it, it was absolutely exposing of what I brought to the table. That that's my like. If I had one word to describe the whole weekend, it was exposed. Mm. 
and and we can get into how and why and all that but it was it was not the result i expected it was a result I thought was possible, but not for how it happened. Mm. I, I expected if something went wrong, it was going to be overall fitness or uh, endurance, really, or I'd make a mistake. And it, it wasn't that. I had I had very specific things exposed in my fitness that didn't allow me to really even compete this weekend, which was a very, very interesting slash demoralizing experience to go out there and not really ever race. Well, if you're, you know, they say misery loves company, but experience also loves company. You had a number of other people who experienced mm -hmm. similar things that you experienced this weekend. Some people who have been racing, some people who uh, came in with what they would claim as good fitness got exposed as well. So this can happen no matter where yeah. you're at in your sort of like uh, competition journey. But what was so today's episode folks we're going to do like i don't know if bracken you describe it as one big lesson learned but um we're going to break it down and talk about you know takeaways we'll talk about we'll, we'll say from the the weekend but what was exposed like what are you referring to specifically well it what it was exposed in me is that i didn't have a binding fitness in my body i had a specific type of fitness i could run quick and go highly anaerobic and transition very well. That was all that I really had. And then the natural things I could do, some athleticism, some obstacle stuff, some downhills. I, I got, those are the things I brought to the table. But what I didn't have was this like binding head-to-toe physical fitness that allowed me to withstand things, pieces of the race that didn't fall into that that little box of fast running transitions, athletic based obstacles. And I think that I'm going to skip ahead to the end already and then work backwards. The end is that having looked back on this now, and I spent a lot of time thinking, I don't know if you know this, Kirk, but I drove straight home afterwards, oh, straight through. What time did you get home? So I got back at uh, 4.56 in the morning. Oh boy. I just had 12 and a half hours straight shot to think. And so I, I thought through all of this. And this was the best possible outcome because any amount of success would have glossed over the underlying mm. lack of global fitness that I have if the race would have spoken to that one little test that I could do well on. So this was skip to the end epilogue. It was a great, great, great learning experience for me. But to begin with, uh, just the, the not the elephant in the room, but like the big, the big specific point that i was exposed on was we had a three to four minute uphill barbed wire crawl in the second half like 60 percent through the race so we're talking eight to nine minute per thousand meter laps prelim one lap semis one lap final was three laps so in a nine minute race you were spending 30 to 40 percent of your time crawling scrambling over a ski mogul course with barbed wire strung across it and i couldn't do that my core my shoulders my hips my glutes they all just crumbled in the very first three to four minute crawl and it rendered me useless and so it was uh it was just this huge gaping fitness hole in the middle basically from my hips up to my shoulders were untrained for any sort of thing that would be useful for doing that task 
whereas my pure clean running or my technical running or all that didn't require any of that to get through for 9 to 24 minutes, and it wasn't addressed at all. But as a result, I brought a very specific type of knife to a gunfight. <laughs> And, and, and I didn't, and I said earlier, I didn't get to peak compete. I literally did not compete for longer than maybe five total minutes on this weekend, which sounds weird, but it's the truth. We got to break this down a little bit. Okay. Um, and I would say, you know, we chatted, I think you had just gotten in your car and started driving back. I was making a trip up the Canadian border to see Jess's family. So we've got some some windshield time together. But I talked to you right afterwards. And I, I feel like you had already started to internalize that this might have been good for you. Like, best case scenario. Like, I could tell. Like, you, you could make sense of it is what I'm saying. But what I want to understand is when you talk about this binding agent, this glue, um, that you couldn't pull it all together. You weren't ready for anything. Let's call it your fitness. Do you think that is a sheer volume of work recently thing, or is it a specificity of work thing that you still were left of center on? We talk about, you mentioned it last week or the week before, uh, and we believe this, but Ryan Kent uh, in one of our interviews mentioned that volume is a safety net for when things go bad. That means that even if things don't go great, if you're doing a lot of volume, like your, your safety net uh, will still carry you through, right? Like the amount of money you have in the fitness bank. Was mm-hmm. it that or was it not that is what I want to know, what your intuition tells you. I think it was 50-50 for me right here in this moment. I think for other people who are exposed out there, it may have been a different, it would have skewed differently. But that that binding agent you talk about, being able to get up and down off the ground with purpose, being able to move dynamically in a weird plane of motion, those are skill-based things that can be done in workouts. And it doesn't take a ton of time to do it. Like doing core work, doing doing a lot of, I don't know, just dynamic exercises, maybe weighted, maybe not under duress, that can be addressed. I haven't done any of those things, but I didn't used to do a lot of those things either. But my volume kept those things in check and I did enough of them that I stayed at least in touch with it and I raced a lot and the race was a lot of skill work and practice in disguise and so now that my volume is incredibly low and has been low for years and I haven't done those things in years neither side could help each other Mm. and so I was just left left very exposed and I want to be very clear that nothing I'm saying here is an excuse these are all admissions of failure these are facts these are not excuses these are facts you're taking ownership. Those are facts. I didn't get screwed over by anything. We all had to do the same test. The fact that a bunch of us failed horribly at it doesn't make it an unfair test. The test may have been weird. It may have been outside the norm, but the people who were prepared still did well. And you know what the interesting thing is, Kirk? Looking back, right before the race, when we all finished our warm-up and got ready, and everyone took their warm-ups off, everyone took their shirt off either to put their race top on or to race shirtless, you could have predicted... With like 80 to 90% accuracy, finish results based on how tan and how ripped people were. Mm. And that usually doesn't apply to Spartan races. But the, the level of tan spoke to how much time they've spent out running this year, mm. out on the mountains. There are people with a significant amount. And you can tell the difference between fake tanning and I've been out on the trails and on the mountains tan. Mm-hmm. The people with that type of tan survived the bad parts. And the people with crazy defined and in shape 
core from like their hip bone all the way up to their obliques and even their deltoids and things like that, which I'm throwing into the core because it's attached to your trunk. Those people could withstand the crawl because whatever they were doing to look that way kind of bulletproofed their ability to move that way. Mm -hmm. And almost never at races does the sight test matter for OCR. People take their shirt off and they're a monster and you're like, well, I'm going to outrun you. Those things did matter this time. And I was pale and I was soft through the midsection. And looking back, both of those things mattered. Hmm. Even though visually they didn't matter, they spoke to the underlying work that went in to get to that point and what you were about to be able to withstand on course. That tan eye test is something I've used for years. Like if I see somebody with that like white to brown transition mid-thigh and I see their shoulders are a little too crispy looking and they look a little mm -hmm. weathered or leathery, maybe a little blotchy reddish tan nose and things where they've just been ex out in the exposure. I'm like, well, I know that dude's been training, if anything. They've been they've been yep. hitting it. But it's I, I always notice that. I, I always take those guys seriously with those weird, like that's definitely a running short tan line or that's definitely your singlet tan line across your shoulder. Not that... That's the sole indicator, but you're kind of right. I've been, I eyed that up for years and I'm, I run on the white side. So I don't even know if I have that, but nonetheless, um, interesting. You know what else is interesting about this watching? I don't know if you've watched the replay yet, um, mm -mm. but you think about it, Ryan Kempson, I'm going to say dominated the men's field, the most dominant victory of all so far against a great field. In person, it came off the exact same way. Maybe even more impressive in person because you could see all of it. He was playing on a different level than every single other person out there. Ryan Kempson went through the barbed wire crawl like a creature, like an animalistic creature that flowed and slithered like a cat stalking its prey in the long grass. His Bedenka method, his joint mobility that he does, he had been training for that barbed wire crawl for years without knowing it. The way his hips and arms moved through the moguls, he was so slithery, sleek, and flowy through it because he had mobility range of motion and what does the guy do? He does kettlebell work, right? He works his core and hip girdle, and then he's really mobile. And it cost him hardly anything compared to the field to go through the barbed wire crawl. And it was just, it was like, well, no shit. Like when you talk about the glue and the binding agents about what it took on this specific course to do well, and then you watch Ryan Kempson go through it, and you're like, oh my God, guy looks like he's he's working at you know 30 percent of capability because it comes so natural to him and i know that's not the case and i know he was working hard but when you say about having the right type of fitness for that course i don't think there was anybody else close to prepared for that kind of movement in that style and those are the things you're talking about yeah so the the way the the my mentality going in i had a very specific plan of action and it was treat it like track first thousand meter there's 43 people, 30 moved on, so you only have to beat 13 people to move on, which means you shouldn't have to do a ton of work unless you're one of those 13 to 15 people that are on the cusp, and I didn't believe I was. Right. So my goal was to work as little as possible and just steal seconds and get up through and qualify on and then really practice in the second round. And so starting up the hill, I know I wasn't on 
camera much at all, at least according to the people I've talked to. So you probably wasn't, you didn't see what I was doing, but I was the last person two thirds of the way up the hill in my 16 person heat. And then people started to slow and I turned it up a half notch, got to the top in 12th, got to the double sandbag carry in 10th, got off the Z wall in fifth and just shut it down. It was, uh, veer, it was, uh, in my heat leading ahead of me were Logan, Veerman, or Logan, Atkins, Veerman, Rylan. And then I was the fifth person coming off Z-Wall behind them. And so I decided, shut it down right here. We had a, a, a steep descent. And I thought, nope, save your descending. You're going to want to be able to hammer something later. And so I just cruised down and didn't do any work. I'm, I'm seriously talking about 80 to 85% effort. And got to the barbed wire crawl fresh and cracked during it. All my great planning went out the window in the middle of it. And I got to the top and was like almost in a panic. Like, What just happened? I got passed by something like six people during the crawl. It didn't matter. I was still safe into the final. But I got to the end of this smashed and I only worked for the barbed wire crawl. My intent was to cruise it because I was already into the final and I still was destroyed by it. And that's when I knew I was in trouble for the rest of the day. What was it about the crawl that destroyed you? Like, how would you describe what, what went? It felt like I was in the middle of a Spartan world championship at the beast distance where everything is really, really fatigued. You're not working hard or fast, but you can't bring your, your breathing down. Your heart rate's not dropping. I think part of it was being really bent over. I was compressing my diaphragm. Uh, because I'm not mobile. When I do well at barbed wire crawls, it's in stadiums when they have the high uh, ropes and I just bear crawl underneath it. And it's for like 10 to 30 seconds. It's it's not the same thing. That's having to sit slowly and work through it. For some reason, nothing in my body could relax. And I don't know if it's because my core and hips aren't strong or mobile enough or what, but every single thing taxed me at like, it felt 10x. Everything was just bad. I came out of it feeling like I had just gotten to the top of Killington or Tahoe, like an hour into a race. I was utterly smoked and I hadn't worked hard up until that point. So it was very shocking. So I finished through, qualified in 18th, I think, moving through. Probably would have qualified about 10th based on how the the heat was moving up until that point. And so I thought, okay, that was really bad. I'm really tired, but I have 20 minutes to recover. I've been doing all my recoveries on five to seven minutes during my big sim days. I can get myself together. And then I have two options here. I can either say the barbed wire crawl is going to be so terrible that I need a cushion. So I need to actually race the first 60% of this round and then just survive the crawl and get through. Or I can double down on my first strategy, go even slower through the first half of the race because I seem to be passing people on Z-Wall and on the double carry and on the transitional running. And then I've always said barbed wire is a decision, not a skill, not fitness. So make the decision to work harder and just say, I'm going to be good at this and I'm going to take a different line through it. And so I went with option B there, which was arrive even more fresh to the barbed wire and then make it a point of emphasis to just work and be diligent on it and that's what i did and i cracked even further Hmm. and i didn't qualify to finals i came out 21st and top 15 go and i think i was 34 seconds or something like that out of out of 15th and it was all i also spent 10 seconds longer on the pistol that round i don't know what was happening it just wasn't i wasn't hitting the target i think i was out in five seconds the first round 
and was out in like 15 or something like that in the second round. But it was uh, and it, that those 34 seconds might as well have been 34 minutes. I couldn't get through the barbed wire crawl any faster if I wanted to. My hips were cramping. My glutes were just like burning. My shoulders, my I was getting pumped out in my arms by crawling because I couldn't do whatever it was efficiently. I was having to take way too much onto my hands. I came around, up, up out of that and had to power hike part of that next hill and then i was terrified on their rig because my arms were so pumped out from that three minute crawl that i thought i don't know how i'm going to get through the rig so it was just like my world utterly imploded twice in the same spot and i didn't work prior to it so like i'm not i didn't get sore after the race people keep asking how are your legs after that well i didn't descend one time i was trying to protect my si and save it for the finals to rip three descents in the finals And so I didn't, I chopped my feet and babied the descents. So I saved, 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 blew up and then doubled down on that strategy in the semis. So it was weird. I, I didn't compete. I didn't work exceptionally hard and I got as destroyed as I've ever been during a race during that crawl. So I left physically exhausted and having done almost no work. Well, first of all, I think your approach was correct because if you look at, let's just speak of the men's field because I dissected it a little bit more. Um, women's race was fantastic, by the way, as well. So not not a disservice to them at all. But we're talking about you in the men's field in that race. Um, mm-hmm. People who did accidentally or intentionally expend too much energy early tanked in the final. Logan Broadbent looked great until he didn't. Robert Killian looked mm-hmm. like maybe Robert Killian of old until he certainly didn't. Anybody who overextended themselves early, the only chance you have of going to the final and doing well is if you are head and shoulders better than everybody else and you can relax through the trial, the rounds, or if you're strategic to just barely get by every round and then come into the finals being able to access your fitness. Um, Ryan Kempson, I believe, who won the men's field was only like four seconds slower on his first lap of the 3K as he was in his fastest round previously, for example. Ryan was able to hold back and then hammer. So point being is your approach was correct. I think your strategy, the smartest person who isn't necessarily going in as a top dog, barely sneaks into round two and then barely sneaks into the final and then gets to work. So I don't think you could have over revved early, let's say in round two, and then gone to the final and done anything with it because that's not where you're at. So you did the right thing. Point being is what I'm getting at. So I think that was the right approach is to try to conserve. Unfortunately, even conserving wasn't conservative enough, obviously, which is just what it is at this point. I could have walked up to that barbed wire crawl and blown up, I think. I think it was that significant of an exposure to what I was terrible at. Now, looking back, I lost three to four seconds at the first obstacle and the second obstacle because of lines. Because they, they chose a very bad flow of the course. Or really good if you wanted to reward people for getting out. Ryan Brzezlar and I stood still and waited for people at the Irish table because they only had two sections of it. And one was for females. Mm-hmm. So it was only like 12 feet wide and you had to fit 16 people through it. Which if you get up and flip sideways, there's room for three people in 12 feet, maybe four. Right. And so we were just standing there. And then getting up to the double sandbag carry, I probably waited five seconds. So in retrospect, could I have gone out and been top five up the hill and gotten through there and then shut it down or just run hard all the way through the barbed wire and die? I'm going to die in it either way. I now know just get to it fast and tired and then die in it and then finish. I think that probably gets me to finals. There's 34 seconds in that race, but it doesn't change the fact that I would take in dead last in finals or second or third last. 
Like what happened to Killian would have happened to me even worse. Right. That's what I'm getting at is like when you think about how do you get to the final and then produce, you're like, I don't know if I don't know if all of this conversation is in a sense, not null and void because it's not, but like either way, you would have ended up in the same position at some point, whether it was round two or round three in the finals, you'd have been like, well, there's my, this is where I'm exposed, which a lot of people were. Yeah, there was, this was the most negative talk I've ever heard from people at a race before. Why don't you talk about that well, without saying names? Too far into it. No, without saying names, why don't you say the chatter? But there were people who did not want to be in the final. There was a lot of chat of, this is dumb. I don't want to do that crawl three more times. A lot of people talking like, why would I spend all this time training for a eight to nine minute lap to spend over a third of it crawling uphill through mud puddles and rocks? People were so cut up from the barbed wire, so cut up from the rock. I don't think the the shins were talked about. Everyone's shins and knees were cut and bleeding because the only way to get low through the barbed wire was to scrape your legs down through it. And so it was like, you're getting it from above or below. Either way, you're getting it. So we're all cut up through our shins. We're all bleeding from our knees. Everyone's looking down. We're coated in this orange, nasty mud thinking that someone's getting sick off this. Someone's getting infected. It was just a really negative tent in between. And there, there was no shade, so everyone was crowded in the tent. And it was negative. There, was, there were people who were in podium position and may or may not have made the podium who considered walking off the course in the middle of the race because they were having such little fun because of the crawl. So this isn't to rag on the course or the, any, it's just to put into perspective how many people had miserable days out there. Even people who made the podium had zero fun because that crawl took everyone and just ripped them back down to a miserable state. So in a, in a way, not making the final was a blessing. Because everyone who made the final showed up and took their lumps. And there was no way around it. You just got worse and worse and worse throughout the final. So it was it was really demoralizing to be in and to watch people go through. But it was the best thing that could have happened to me personally. To other people, it may have turned them off the sport. Or it may have kept them from coming back. But what it did for me is it kept me from having this happen later on down the road. Because I, And I think I told you this on the phone in the car. But if you would have taken... If you would have interviewed me on course halfway through the first prelim, I had this thought go through my head as I came picking my way daintily down the first descent, past another person on the rope climb, and I'm sitting there in fifth place within touching distance of five four of the best people in the sport. My thought was, I'm for sure top 10 today. I know they're not hammering either, but they got out hard, didn't get stopped at those different obstacles, and I still made up ground. I'm in fifth here. I'm top 10 in this final. And I think top five is a real legitimate option. And if that crawl's not there, I think that's how it plays out. Because I wasn't even using the things I was fit at yet. I was saving them. And what that would have done is that would have gotten me maybe a qualifier to Worlds. It would have given me a full head of steam with my confidence. And I would have just done more of what I did to get here. I understood coming in, my training volume was very low. So I would have done 50% more of what I've been doing. And eventually... I would have hit something that exposed what this race exposed, but I would have been further down the line with no time to remedy it. So for me, it was the best possible outcome, which was get embarrassed, get exposed, and then make decisions for how to move forward so that that binding agent of fitness 
is present in any form of racing because it exposed me on this crawl, but it would it ex- also exposed me when I did my DECA time trial against Marcus when we were doing skierg and dead ball overs, having to crunch down over, get back up with things. It, the same thing was exposed there and my ram burpees there. And it's the same thing that got exposed on my sled push and pull in high rocks. And it's the same type of thing that keeps getting exposed, but I keep getting through it because I've been doing partner races or my own training. It hasn't mattered yet. So I needed this come to Jesus moment. So it was less negative for me than a lot of other people out there. So I'm less bitter about it than I think a lot of people are this morning. Are you embarrassed? For sure. Why? Because there was a time and place where I could roll out of bed any given day and not worry about being outside of the top five, at worst top 10. And I just lost my soul out there on the mountain for 18th place. Like That's embarrassing to me. I'm a competitive athlete and I know how I looked out there. I know once I got out of that crawl, how I look like a toddler out there trying to run up a mountain. It was like, it was not an impressive performance and I'm under no (laughs) delusions about that. It was an embarrassing performance. I'm someone who's talked about how to train for the sport for years and talked about how I believe I can still be one of the best at these kind of things if I go after it. And then I got out there and was just exposed and it felt like kind of exposed as a fraud. Now, I don't believe that, but that's a real easy take to take from that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was embarrassing. I'm far too egotistical and competitive to not be embarrassed by that. Mm. And I think that had the course been suited to the type of fitness I had, I would have left there with a big ego boost and a false sense of fitness because it was I was bound to be exposed at some point. That's fair. That's fair. I uh, I feel like the ironic part of this for me is that watching it was the first FOMO I had and desire to be out there on course because it, it looked sort of gritty and like what I've been wishing Spartan was again. But at the same time, then I chatted with you on mm-hmm. the phone afterwards and I was like, I don't know if I want any part of that or not anymore based on how things actually went, per- perception versus reality. Because yeah. everybody looked, even the Atkins who took second, like, by his by the end of the crawl on his second lap, I was like, that is the guy who is suffering and moving slow at the same time. There's a difference between suffering mm-hmm. and being able to push and then suffering and surviving. And part of me craves that. Part of me is like, is it is that what I want right now? I don't know. But it's just it's just interesting. So then if you were to let's say you hey, could see into the future. And you knew four weeks out that this was going to be what would happen at Palmerton. You knew there was this crawl and that what could you have changed about your training to be better prepared for something like a three minute uphill crawl like that? Like, what could you have done if you had to go back in time? Anything outside of the obvious? What is the obvious of just doing that specific type of thing? Like find the steepest, nastiest boulder scramble field i could and make myself like spider-man crawl up it Mm. three times a week outside of doing something like that i don't think that there's a way to be to do well there for me four weeks wouldn't have done it i have to go back in time four months or honestly the only logical explanation would be to not go and i think a lot of people would have taken that option if in the middle of the race someone had said i'm going to give you one reset button take rewind you back 48 hours in time so that you can not get on your flight or not get in the car i think 50% 50% of the field would have taken that option because it wasn't fixable in the moment. And I know we need to focus on the future instead of the past, right? It's easy to talk about what you did do versus what you're doing now or what you're going to do. But let's talk about the past. Mm-hmm. Bracken Crocker in 2015, 
14, 15. What would have happened to Bracken Crocker then on this course? I would have still been exposed because looking back uh, that that year, for example, in Montana, I did I had my highest finish at a national series event and I did well on that crawl. That was a rolling crawl. I don't know if you mm-hmm. recall that, but I, for the first time ever, had really worked a crawl. It was pretty long, but it was scramble and rolling, and it was at the very end of the race. It was like kicking. Yeah, you're tired, but you can get through it. You had your compression Reebok, compression Reebok top on, little turquoise in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I remember. I remember. You. you even looked at the camera and winked or something mid-race. You were like, yeah, I'm feeling myself. Wink. Whatever it yeah, was. Yeah, I was super fit, and... And six weeks later, we ran in Monterey, and probably a mile or two two miles into the race, there was an uphill through thick grass barbed wire crawl. And I went from, we were in a line that day running fast. It was like me, Hunter, and Mark Botras in a line trying to hang on to people ahead of us. It was just single file. Woods was fast. Botras was fast. Cody was fast. Hobie was fast. Everyone was there. And we hit this uphill barbed wire crawl. And it felt like I was getting punched in the diaphragm over and over and over. And it wasn't that long, but I just got, Atkins was behind me by a stride or two at that point and finished up like 40 feet ahead of me Mm. and was gone. And I crumbled the rest of that race. I had a tough race and that was when I was coming off my broken toe Mm -hmm. and I was thinking I lost a lot of fitness during this, but I was so fit that I couldn't have lost that much. So in retrospect, that cost me there. And then out in Washougal, there's that, they're notorious steep dirt barbed wire crawl that they hose down and I always leak time there but it's always in the last 400 meters of the race and so there was that race where I was closing down on Cody Moat in the last mile of that race and got it down to like seven seconds at one point and it was back up to 20 by the end of that uphill barbed wire crawl and I just told myself hey, I emptied the tube so much trying to catch Cody that I didn't have anything left but looking back at all of these, there was a time in Ohio, there's a time in Indiana. Anytime we have to crawl specifically uphill, I come out of it really nauseous and just trashed. And then this was all that on steroids, amplified times 10. Hmm. It was the longest crawl I've ever done. It was the steepest crawl I've ever done. And it had the most odd motions through it. So I think 2015 me would have crumbled there, made the finals and taken like 10th, hmm. but would have gone into that thinking I'm the best short course guy in the game if Hunter's not here. I'm going to win this thing. And so I would have been exposed in a less dramatic fashion. I I, I think I've had this sort of weakness my entire life, Mm. but I used to do a little bit more to alleviate it, and I was in way better shape and racing more often. I buy it. I buy it. And you know what, though? When it comes down to it, you didn't even have the chance, right? But even the winner was 22 minutes, 23 minutes. You're talking about like some of the best 8K athletes in the world would run a time that for five miles would run that fast. Like this becomes that blurry area between like VO two max and threshold effort. Like this is a, this is an endurance event. And so obviously the cushy comfy pillow to sleep on that you fall back on still has to be volume. If you plan to go to the final and do well, you need to have money in your bank, right. To, to withdraw, but go, well, go ahead. I had a question. No, you're just right. But you never had the chance, point being, to even to even get there and then analyze, right? Um, but we know we, the writing was on the wall. What right. would have happened there? But I knew. I knew. You could feel it. We all knew. Yeah. I, mean, I think there was a lot of dread on that start line going into the 3K because, truth be told, if you want to pat Spartan on the back, 
They put together a miserable course, and we've been craving. Guys like me have said Spartans gotten soft, and da-da-da. Yes, there's politics around the barbed wire, and should it or should it not be mm-hmm. in there? We're going to leave that conversation for you guys on Race Brain, I'm sure. But point being is, like, yeah, <laughs> they made people dread the start line, which I don't think we've had in quite some time. But I don't want to detract from my question, which is, what now? What do you, what do, you do knowing that whether you're going to race another 3K soon or not— like, what do you do with this info? Like, how does an athlete who wants to be the best dissect, analyze, and make plans moving forward? Well, I think here we are 40 minutes in, and we have the first actionable piece for anyone, which is we all have this thing where whenever this thing happens in a competition or a workout or a run, it exposes me or I do really poorly on it. It can be uphills. It can be downhills. It can be technical running. It could be altitude. It could be duration over 90 minutes. It could be duration over 40 minutes. It could be short, fast stuff. We all have our thing that we try to avoid or we just take our lumps on every time. And I have to get rid of that thing the best I can. I've had things like that in the past, like uphill or downhill or threshold running, but those are bigger, sexier things to go after. Going after hip mobility and core stability and being able to have better endurance with dynamic core movement, that's not a that's not something you work into your interval session as much. That's that's this whole other thing that you have to kind of grind away in, in the dark and no one sees mm-hmm. and you may not ever use it until you have to and then you need it. So what I what I've started doing now is I've just started making a list of every movement or situation that's ever made me feel like that. And then the next step will be identify why, like what are the commonalities between all those movements or obstacles or terrain types that makes me feel utterly blown up without having done much work. And then what in training can I do to fix those pieces? So that's step one. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to know before you maybe give some specifics, uh, more specifics would be uh, what percent do you feel was lack of fitness and what percent do you feel like was lack of having that arrow in your quiver? Like, does it still come down to fitness or does it actually come down to having the right arrows in your quiver? And fitness was a a side story in this case. What is it? I'm genuinely curious. I don't know if I can be accurate in this, but because I think they were so symbiotic, I'm just going to say 50-50. Okay. I didn't have the fitness to cover up the lack of skill and my lack of skill removed all my fitness. So I don't know which one mattered more, but they erased each other. Okay. They both hurt each totally other. Totally erased each They canceled each other out completely. Got it. Yeah. So I'm going to say 50-50, but I think they both have to be addressed with intentional planning moving forward. So it starts with that that piece. How do I basically take my trunk and get it to a point where it can do DECA, High Rock, Spartan, whatever you want to call it, without any of its kind of low to the ground things or multiplane movements reducing me to a shell of myself. I think that's step one. And then step two is is that consistency is king and I'm the most inconsistent athlete probably that showed up there. My guess is that, and how many times have I said this? My guess is I've put in the least hours per week of any person at that start line of anyone in the second round, for sure. I mean, if I'm averaging four workouts per week, four times exercising per week, that's just not enough. Sure. It can get me a quick mile, but it doesn't give me the ability to stray outside of my narrow little confines of skill set right now. And so for me, what I think that looks like is moving down to three quarter or two thirds workouts in order to stack them day after day after day after day after day. 
I was doing big workouts and not being able to do anything for two days in between because my fitness was so low, I couldn't absorb it, but I was getting fitness gains from it. But that doesn't build you a well-rounded engine or body. So I think moving down to baby workouts daily and just keep the ball rolling until those baby workouts grow. But that the consistency for me has to come first. And that the, I think frequency has to come first and my volume will follow. So more of the greasing the groove philosophy, which has worked for you in the past. Yeah. Grease the groove every day. Yeah. Instead of saying I can't run six miles today or eight miles today because it's too costly. So I'm just going to not run today. I'll wait and I'll swing harder tomorrow to make up for Mm -hmm. it. It'll be, if you can run 25 minutes, go run 25 minutes. Get back to what I was doing post COVID of take whatever run I had and then hike afterwards or bike afterwards or row afterwards. I got, I got happy and content just swinging hard three times a week and not doing anything in between. And that only takes you so, and I knew the cliff was coming and I just didn't know how big and abrupt that cliff was going to be. I told you beforehand, I was happy. I knew it wasn't the best training plan, but I was happy with what I was doing. But as soon as I was unhappy with it on race day, none of it was worth it. Right. That in the moment happiness of a lazy, fun training cycle wasn't fun anymore. Can I tell you what I think from the outside looking in? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to compare you to Ryan Atkins because that's an unfair thing to do, to compare anybody to Ryan Atkins. But I'm going to compare you to Ryan Atkins. I think that this is 70 to 80% fitness, and I think it's 20 to 30% skill. I really do. I think that because um, if you deduct it down to its simplest form, that's what it becomes. And a guy like Ryan Atkins, although he has great horizontal fitness for the way he trains, has been training so far from the spectrum of what this race requires with his sky running. I don't know how much he's touching Mm -hmm. for weights. He certainly isn't moving animalistically. He certainly, he might be down a little muscle mass from what it looked like maybe, just a slight amount. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw him in person. I didn't. And did he suffer? Boy, did he suffer. But guess what? He had a, he had a piggy bank to rely on when it came down to it. And he could just hang on by his fingernails to still put together a good performance in a race that he was not training for. And that's fitness. That's the bank account. And Ryan Atkins has a giant bank account of fitness. And again, it's not fair to compare you to, like I say, most of us are mortals and he's one of the few immortals, but we're all mortal, right? We really are all mortal. So to compare you to Atkins, I think is fair in the sense that I still think it's engine and I don't, I think, I think it's more from the outside looking in, it's still engine. I think the skills are definitely higher percentage in a race like this versus a mountain beast on a Spartan course. However, it's still the backup plan. And so my thought is that, and I'm not like pushing you in one direction or another, but my thought is engine. It still comes down to, if you have to waffle over what to do moving forward, it's put money in the bank, whatever it looks like. I don't know, but it just seems to me like Mm -hmm. that is still the answer. And that's a guy who I wasn't out on course. I didn't feel what you felt or go through what everybody went through. Maybe everybody disagrees with me because Atkins is the, the exception, not the rule, but that's the outside looking in. And you can rebuttal me for sure because I'm talking out of ignorance here, but just what I saw third party. No, it's not a rebuttal because it's right. You're right about that. But the difference between, and I'm just going to say, yes, it's engine. His engine was bigger and more durable. But the difference between Ryan and I is Ryan's lost his arms and his back a little bit. Like he's reduced, let's say, 10% in his muscle mass. Mm. 
his core is still barely and ripped. Mm. Like he he still has that. And the way he and I play and spend our hobbies and free time are not the same. He ice climbed all winter. True. He bikes like crazy. Core, shoulders, grip, hips, all of those things. But the way he bikes, he's always engaged because he mountain bikes and he ice climbs like crazy. And so his hobbies are providing a bit of that skill or binding agent component where mine are not. And so even when he gets away from it, not only does his hobbies keep him more ready for this, but like you said, he's got 100% more volume than me and his engine is 100% bigger. Maybe that's not the accurate number, but... So so you're you're right, and he also still keeps those components in in some capacity. I don't like climbing. I don't like biking. Mm-hmm. I don't do those things. I'm sedentary when I'm not working out. And it all of that was all... Ex- I used to be able to handle it when your engine's big enough, you can handle your other deficiencies. And so I guess I answered your, what percentage was engine and skill about that course for me in that yeah, yeah. moment. If that course would have been Palm Beach, I think the skill wouldn't have mattered. Mm. And then it would have all been engine if I do well or don't do well. And if it would have been Big Bear, I think I would have been split in the in the middle. I, shockingly, would have done better at Big Bear than I would have done here. Even with the altitude? Yeah, because I, like I've suffered at altitude, but I wouldn't have had to crawl for three and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know, the heavy carry at altitude is not a heart rate thing. So I think if I get a Palm Beach course, I don't expose this. And it just sets me up to erode it even further to keep not even paying it lip service for more months until that moment it comes back. And let's say that was at Worlds. Let's say I qualify. Let's say it was a Palm Beach type course and I do really well and I qualify for Worlds and I invest thousands into it and I go over there and now we have to crawl up a sand dune, which is a real possibility over there. Suddenly it happens on that stage and now it's a way worse outcome than this is. So I was blessed by this race. But it's only a blessing if you do something with it. A blessing isn't a blessing if you sit on your hands and just let it erode. Yeah. The only bummer about this is the limited opportunities to participate in high-end events of this format. And the remainder here for North America are a huge travel commitment. I believe we have Mexico. We have, There's only one left. Yeah. Okay, exactly. So, so it's like a tough deal because now it's like if you want to go compete at Worlds, which is light years away, it feels like, there's really very limited chance it's four and a half months. Yeah, limited chance to go and and put a litmus test to training changes it's like a well i'm gonna go back to the lab i'm gonna no i'm done oh you are you're done yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not gonna do that again not this year oh i'm not gonna fly down to mexico city for a a chance of maybe it going well and maybe it not that's no I'm going to spend enough time in the lab that if the series comes back next year Mm. and I choose a course, I'm ready to rock. And if it doesn't come back, whatever other race at the end of this year is happening that I choose to go to that, that I can, I I want to get back to the point where I can jump into races and be competitive regardless of what the setup is. I don't need to, I shouldn't need to have a great setup for me. Even if I don't want to compete and do well, I want the option to compete and do well. So you got clarity. Yeah. 3K is done for me this year. That was it. Great. That was my qualifier. Fantastic. Then you have clarity. That's great. I mean that. Yeah. Okay. I, I for some reason, thought that you were entertaining it regardless. <sighs> Had this been like a Palm Beach setup, and I would have made the final and competed until I blew up and had some real carrot dangling in there that said, you could make a splash at Worlds. You have four and a half months. Go monk mode-ish. Fine. I'll do that. 
I'll still have to go get a qualifier somewhere else. But then it'll be a point system thing. I can just go do two more races, get my five points. And since I did enough in the race to show them, I'll get selected maybe. Mm. But there's no carrot leaving this. There's a there's a path leaving this to get to a carrot, but there's no carrot right now. It would be irresponsible of me as a father and a businessman to go monk mode for something that I may not even have a prayer at this year. Mm. So this this recedes back to how am I going to spend my free time? I want to fill it with good consecutive workouts, but I'm not going to let it bleed into anything other than my free time. Maybe a good swing of the hammer when you come visit for my wedding coming up. We get a little training session in with the boys. Huh? Oh, yeah. A couple bank deposits. Um, no crawls. No, I have no interest right now, so that's fine by me. Um, so then um, I don't mean to be going like uh, – Q&A mode here with you, but I'm genuinely curious then because um, we didn't we haven't discussed this yet. So do you have anything on the the um, calendar coming up uh, at all? Or are you going to just go and start getting to work on fitness and then worry about that later? What races you're going to hit? Well, I had I had this as my my calendar built to Abu Dhabi in December, assuming that this went well. Act the part, get there if it works out. Yep. That's gone now. So now all the things I had penciled in can be there. There's a still a chance to go after Decafit. The world championship is the same week or within a week. So the time frame lines up. There's a Chicago high rocks in fall. There are local things I'd like to do. So those all move from penciled to now let's start looking at it and decide, but the process has to be followed, which is look at all of them and what would expose me and scare me right now. And while I'm building my volume up, that's the skill. Those are the skills I'm working on to make sure that you don't get to high rocks and have the high rocks version of this thing happen where you spend seven minutes on a sled mm. or 31 minutes <laughs> on a sled yeah. or that I don't go out there and run. Like, what did I run? 69 minutes the last time? I wouldn't want to go to High Rocks and run another 69. I'd want to go and run like a 64 or a 62 or something like that because like, by nature, I'm a dreamer. That's what I want to do. I want to go be good at things and attack them. And really, I want to be able to compete the entire time. Even if I don't win, I want to be in the fight. And right now, I don't think any of those courses I could be in the fight the whole time. I would have to treat it like Palmerton, which is where do I coast and where do I work? And I hated that. Mm. I don't mind coasting through a prelim to get to a final. It turned into where can I work hard and where can I not because I can't even afford to. I can't do both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to do any more competitions where I have to choose, well, I can't push here because I'm going to fail the rig because my grip's going to be out. Or I can't hammer this descent because my legs are going to be gone for climbing. Or I can't work this because there's a crawl coming. I would just like to address those underlying pieces while the volume raises towards fall and then decide from there. That's what I would do if I were you. It's exactly what I would do if I were you. Heck, I feel like I've been in that mode constantly. I'm just training and then towards yeah. whatever whatever feels right and then when it decides to when I decide to pull the trigger, I pull the trigger. I think at this point like if you look at this bracken, it's like you're in a really good position. You're in a damn good position for the first time in years. Yeah, for sure. Well, right. You know, you know all this, but for the first time in years, you're, I'm going to knock on wood, relatively healthy. We haven't talked too much about chronic injury or any of these things recently. Like the world is your freaking oyster right now. Like you get to train and you can choose, you have decisions to make finally. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're just at the beginning of this ball starting to roll. And I don't think you, maybe you realize it, but I don't think people really realize you're at the very beginning phase of like finally having a ball that's creating some momentum right now with the way it's rolling and we're just getting started. And so it's like, yeah, of course, like go back, 
train and I think there's one trajectory and that's positive moving forward. So like, I don't know. That's how I see it anyways. Maybe you don't, maybe you see it that way. Maybe you don't, but that's how I look at it. No, I do. And whenever I think about the events that excite me, like they're, they're kind of lumped into three types of events. One would be like the lake path type of excitement, Mm -hmm. something long, something, but like grindy and fast, like sustained effort. Grindy and fast is a weird combination, but that which is basically threshold running. So that gets lumped into one. The other side would be that Tennessee Mile or Seven Sisters, the ability to climb and descend for hours. That gets lumped into a third and then the or into a second. And then the third would be some sort of fast compromised running, mm-hmm. whether it's a 3K series or DECA or High Rocks. That kind of thing always seems to just bubble back to my surface and I have to try it. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to go anaerobic and have the skill set and the full body fitness to be able to do that. I think those are my three things. And then that makes it really easy. If I have three things I want to be good at, one's really long and steep. One's kind of mid-range, that 10 to 30K of sustained running. And then the other one is an hour or less of highly compromised work. Those are three easy things to focus on and build workouts around and build a type of training plan that you stay ready for all three. Because you can be ready for all three of those things, especially how my fitness is built, which mm. is from the top down. Yeah. Well, and if you practice what we have preached on here many times before, which I know you will, it's like, well, you must make your training decisions lean towards the longest of the events. Mm -hmm. And if you make your training decisions lean towards the longest of events and you train and you respond from the top down, it makes perfect sense. You train a little longer and over over swing on the stimulus front and typically it's going to bleed down to the shorter stuff anyways. And that works for most people, but I think even for you more so than the average human. So like it makes perfect sense to me, but I think. So it really lends itself to a nine day cycle. Yeah. You have a threshold day. You have a hill day and you have a a hybrid day. Yeah. Now that could be a seven day and you go threshold hill, threshold hybrid, or in a different part of training, hybrid hill, hybrid threshold, and your threshold works happening on your hybrid. I mean, there's a, a million ways to skin this cat if that's what you're so inclined to do, but it fits in nicely. Yeah. And then working up the duration of your long run and... Bada bing, bada boom. You're there. There it is. So yeah, I mean, the like I said, I left here blessed. There is a path that's very clearly leading out in front. Love it. And whether that path leads back to a competitive sport or it just leads to longevity because I've started to fill in the holes that are are rotting away in my fitness, then either one's okay. But the sport is so good right now, Kirk. One of the things that was eye-opening out there is that the second round of people are doing really well. We talk about one of the differences between 15 and now is in 2015, there wasn't a next round of people to catch you if you crumbled. Now there's just a whole bunch of people who are just really good. They're not great, but they're so good that you can't be not great or they, they catch you. Right. There's not this huge gap where of no man's land, I can just hang out there. No, no man's land is filled with 50 other dogs now. Yeah, I remember, I don't know if you remember, I said last week, I said, I think you're going to be surprised at how good these people are when you're shoulder to shoulder with them. Because it's hard to know because we don't have the names of old in there, right? Like the the icons that we followed for years aren't really racing anymore. The Hobies and the Cody's and, and Albin isn't in here anymore, for example. But like, dude, is Kempson as good or better than Hobie ever was at this? Probably yes. And he doesn't, we don't, 
we don't have the chance to put a litmus test to them going head to heads. Like these people are monsters, like absolute killers. You got to find that out. But yes, these com- these lines have been competitive as heck over the last couple of years. It's been ridiculous in a great way. I kept getting to obstacles with people next to me that I'd never seen before in my life. <laughs> uh-huh. What? What? Where are all these people coming from? <laughs> yeah. And then to your Hobie point, watching the race, watching Kempson, my thought was I can only think of one person who could give him a run here right now, and that would be prime Hobie because Hobie could have moved through that barbed wire so well. Yeah. He's the only other one. Kempson was on a different plane of existence. It was fun to watch. It's fun to watch while not doing it. That's how I describe it. You told me it was a privilege to be this nervous and to be that embarrassed or exposed. And you were right. It was a privilege. It was a privilege to go out there and see people wearing our shirts. It was a privilege to hear my name call out on course. It was a privilege to be able to suffer alongside of people who have really put in the work. It was a privilege to watch what hard work does. Guys who I would say, if you had to list attribute points of your natural abilities, I should be ahead of and watch. It was a privilege to watch what hard work does. Hmm. They just move past you because they don't have the weaknesses. Their highs may not be able to be as high, Mm -hmm. but their lows don't exist. It was a privilege to watch that in action. And then it was a privilege to be able to drive all the way home in my thoughts and realize just like this is, it's a hobby and it's a rewarding, punishing, brutal hobby. So you you were right with that word. All this was privilege. Hmm. That's good. Uh, that's good perspective. I don't. I don't know if my Spartan OCR days are completely behind me, or if there's going to be a mm-hmm. an encore, so to speak. Um, but I will say that uh, watching the caliber of athletes gather again—that I was hoping the sport would bring together in a race—and seeing some people embrace it—that was cool. Right. Not that I want to hop on the bandwagon in quotes. However, if we continue to have people show up, that I mean, of course, it's nice to go out and win races, but that doesn't excite me as much as going out and going shoulder to shoulder against uh, the very best. And so if we continue to see this, which I hope we do, I'm hoping Palmerton wasn't a one-off, which I'm afraid it might be. Um, there's a chance I'll get back out there just to chase competition. But that is yeah. TBD still. I'll tell you what, as negative as the atmosphere was in between rounds by the people getting demoralized by it, the atmosphere prior was electric Mm. everyone was buzzing beforehand this feels like a world championship this is this feels like the we've never seen something like this in the last five years this is it it would there was a palpable buzz just from how many monsters were there that part was really cool and everyone kind of agreed if they had made the final a one lap race this still would have been a dynamic event Mm. because you could have ripped it if you wanted to you could have gone after that but knowing what having to do all those things three times, it made it so that people were moving on course slower than they would during the actual super or right. beast the next day on course. Because there was no time in between to run. It was just nine to ten minutes of barbed wire crawling in a 24-minute race. Yeah. Like you can't possibly do much with that. But like it, it, it was a, I think it was a broken product that weekend. It didn't accomplish what they set out to accomplish. But it's a fixable product, mm-hmm. too. They could have even kept that kind of foolish course and made it a one lap final and it would have been dynamic Mm. so i think the i don't think it's dead i think they can fix it i don't know if they will or not but i think that there's there'll be more opportunities like this with big crowds of highly competitive people showing up if they can make a few moves in the right direction i hope there is i also hope we get some spectators out uh because 
on video it looked like it was still a ghost town unfortunately but we'll see if that can be cleaned up too yeah, yeah it, was. it was yeah it appeared that way um all right we should wrap this thing up uh i'm very curious to see how training goes i can't wait to actually we won't do it now but i can't wait to talk about training specifics with you moving forward we'll have to have maybe a recorded maybe a non-recorded conversation but i'm going to be curious what you come up with for yourself and uh folks if you haven't okay if you haven't listened uh to last week's interview with mike brunette uh i think we had a nice conversation with a say an ordinary guy doing extraordinary things and it was an interesting i think anybody could get some takeaways out of I'd interview Mark, Mike Brunette. Mm-hmm. He'd run sub three hours uh, for 50 marathons in 50 different states uh, with quite a few second attempts and stories along the way. So go back, listen to that one. Well, that's what blew my mind. When he when we started talking to him, it never crossed my mind that he would have to redo seven of them or some of them twice, mm-hmm. flying multiple places multiple times. That I don't know why, but that didn't enter into the equation for me. That that changes the dynamic of that pursuit. Yeah, well, especially because a lot of folks who have run, let's say, sub three hours in all the states, uh, they're 230 marathoners going out and doing it. So it's not necessarily eat. It's easier for them. Let's just say, okay, it's easier for them. They don't have to work, get it perfectly right every time to do it. For sure. Whereas Mike was riding the line oftentimes having to race truly to make time and so that's what makes his uh his accomplishment unique i think but um most of these people it's their long run you get it done mm-hmm. he was doing a long quality session at best a race at worst yeah. yeah that changes it i was impressed with that Yeah, me too um all right i'm happy if you're happy i don't know if the word happy is there yet but i'm i'm above water well i enjoyed chatting this out regardless so i'm glad yeah all right well Hey, and hats off to Bracken editing the Friday episode while in Palmerton in his hotel room before the race. Like that is dedication to the people of the running public. Editing episodes the morning of a national series race. That is a guy I want on my side. That's right. That's right. Thank you for your service. (laughs) 